All right, so this afternoon we're going to be talking about uh, biblical communication. And last month, JC taught on uh, biblical conflict resolution, and he pointed us to James uh, chapter 4 and the source of our conflict being our desires. And so today we're going to touch upon a related topic, which is biblical communication, right? And the question is, how are we as citizens of His kingdom not only to deal with conflict, but how are we to communicate with one another? And what we're going to see is that as citizens of God's kingdom, we're to reflect and represent our king in the message, in the method, in the motive, in the goal of our communication, okay? And so if I can have my first slide. All right. And to begin, I've actually asked a couple of our members if they would go ahead and share with us some of the challenges that they've faced in communication in their marriage and parenting. And, you know, 1 Corinthians 10.13 says that no temptation has overtaken us, but what is common to man. And so hopefully as you listen to them share, um, you know, we'll recognize that we're not alone in our struggles, right? But God has given us a church uh, to come alongside as, as we struggle with these things and find these challenges before us, uh, how we can address them God's way. And so first I've asked Kevin and Nat to share, and then I've also asked Eric uh, and Angela. And maybe before you start, you can maybe introduce a little bit about your family and also how long you guys have been married. All right. Hey, uh, so I'm Kevin, and this is my wife, Natalia, and we have three kids, Catherine, Juliana, and James. They're eight, six, and four. Uh, yeah, so we've been married for over um, nine years. Um, we've been given about two minutes, so it'll be, it might be brief, but if you want to talk to us afterwards, you can. Um, but our, you know, we've been married for over nine years, and our communication is still definitely a work in progress. And... Um, Essentially, it still reveals a lot of sin within me. Uh, there are many times where we would plan certain things, um, and then when the time of the actual planning comes, we find out that the other person has misunderstood us. And I think, um, you know, one thing I've learned from that is to clearly reiterate the plan, even if it seems repetitive, to just communicate that across um, instead of just assuming. Uh, the other thing is, even if we miscommunicate, which will happen since we're imperfect, um, I think it's how I react that, um, that our Lord is concerned about. Um, do I sin in the midst of miscommunication? Or do I have the humility to trust in God's sovereignty and not be angry or disappointed when things are basically not according to my plan? Um, also, I think a lot of communication happens not just with our words, um, but also our facial expressions and other aspects of um, communication. And uh, one thing we discussed with Carl when we were eating with them at retreat was that, um, you know, what happens if it's at the end of the day? You're tired. Uh, there are things that still need to be hashed out. Um, and his counsel was to basically table it until we're both refreshed. I mean, there's no need to work it out all that night when we're both tired because eventually one of us might just acknowledge, okay, we just agree just because we want to sleep and not really because we have understood the other person's concern. And so, yeah, there are definitely more things, but uh, for now, that's it. Uh, we're available to chat afterwards. But. Um. Paul Tripp said it well. Relationships are a struggle because of what we bring into it, sin. 
Specifically in communication, one of the areas Kevin and I have struggled in our marriage is our pride, not humbling ourselves to apologize to one another for sinning against one another. Whether it's through our actions or our words, we have sinned when, we, when what we say, which is um, out of the outflow of the heart, does not glorify God. Psalms, one, Psalms 19 says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. It shows us how perfect communication from God looks like. Everything gives glory to God, and so should our speech. The hope is that there is grace in every hurtful moment, every time um, we sin or have been sinned against. You can love, forgive, and persevere even when things are hard, because God gives more grace. James 4, 6 says, but he gives more grace. Our hope is not in the other person, especially in marriage, but the encouragement is that our hope is in Christ. Joanna Hargrove had challenged us to encourage our husbands for 30 days, and I think it is so important that we affirm our husbands with the godly attribute we see in him, which builds him up to be the leader he is called to be as it proclaims glory back to God. Thank you. Hi, everyone. Um, so uh, my name's Eric. This is my wife, Angela. Uh, we've been married for just over a year now. So last year, last week was actually our one year. Um, so pretty newly married, um, but, <laughs> but, you know, very, very similar challenges to what Kevin was sharing. Um, so, you know, for the two of us, one of the challenges that we experienced very early in our marriage was, um, yeah, just communicating um, with each other in general, um, communicating, you know, what our plans were, um, as ourselves, but also now that, you know, we're one flesh, what that looks like communicating those plans to one another. And, um, you know, what that looked like is, you know, early in our marriage when, when it came to um, spending time with friends and family or going to um, family's homes during the holidays, um, you know, there would be a lot of assumptions. And um, usually when there's assumptions, you know, there's not the proper communication bet between the two of us. And um, that leads to conflict because, you know, one of us would assume that, um, you know, what was on our what was on our minds was exactly what the other person was thinking, and, um, you know, that itself doesn't reflect us being one, but as two people, right? So um, something that stood out to us during, or to, to at least me during premarital was, um, yeah, just with, um, you know, being being singles, right? You're, you're two people, but when you become married, you're, like the word says, you become one flesh, and, um, you know, when it comes to communication, um, it's, it's no different where, um, you know, we're, we're one flesh now, and the decisions we make and the ways that we, we communicate to one another, um, it, it starts with being able to communicate that in the first place and, um, you know, what that looks like to um, just love each other and imitate Christ in that, so. Yeah, and I think what Eric said, a lot of it was good stuff, like spending time with our family, um, or like for me, I'm a really big fan of the Buy Nothing Facebook page because like who doesn't like free stuff? But um, you know, a lot of times I would get stuff without consulting him and um, you know, now we have like four free TVs. Um, so <laughs> yeah, so I think um, like it says in James 4, um, you know, why are, we, why are there fights and quarrels among us? It's because we, um, our passions are different, right? We have different desires, and those are conflicting with the time, um, like how we want to spend our time. Um, and so uh, something we actually just talked about, too, with the newlyweds is that, um, you know, these conflicts, um, it's not just about, like, 
getting to the decision, right, and saying, okay, this is what we're going to spend with our time and just move on with our lives. But, um, you know, the, the way that God helps us to grow is by putting us through these conflicts so that we can struggle well and um, ask him for help when um, you're not, we're at odds with each other. Um, and we really glorify him in the way that we depend on him to help us um, reconcile and, um, yeah, just questioning, you know, the attitude in which um, our hearts are at with whether or not we love each other or if we're just trying to insist on our own way. Um, so, yeah, you guys can be continuing to pray for us and, um, and also just anybody out there who's, you know, going through that. So, thanks. All right. Well, thank you, Kevin, that. Thank you, Eric and Angela. And, um, yeah, just for sharing those things, and I know many of us can relate and have struggled in the same ways, and so hopefully uh, we can continue to encourage one another in the ways of the Lord and just to be praying for the, one another even as we struggle with, with our own communication. Um, so uh, if I can have my next slide. Um, why communicate, right? Why is communication an important aspect of any human relationship, whether it's marriage or you know, between roommates, uh, between, you know, any two human beings. Well, first, God created us to relate to one another, right? This is part of His divine design as men and women. And if we look at Genesis 1 through 2, we see God's original purpose and design for communication, right? We see the power of the divine word in creation. We also see that words and communication are given to us as a vehicle or a means to accomplish many responsibilities and relational aspects, particularly in marriage. We also know that without communication, we cannot address issues or resolve conflict without it. And let me give us a negative example, right? Some of us, including myself, we grew up in homes where our parents hardly communicated, or if they did communicate, it was only when they had to. Right? Husbands and wives would learn to sort of stay in their lanes, right? where the wives would mainly deal essentially with the kids, while the husband just focuses on work. And they just, as long as they stay in their lanes, they don't cross over, things are okay. But the reality is, you might accomplish things for a little while, but the marriage will eventually break down. Right? And that's why you might see that divorce rates among professing Christians are as high as those who would not profess to be Christians. And those who do stay together in their marriage, especially in Asian circles, do so for more pragmatic reasons, right? And I hear more and more of adults getting divorced later in their marriage and later in life, after the kids are grown up and out of the house, and they all just hold on as long as they can. But eventually, uh, because their communication is not done God's way, right? Things break apart, and they end up getting divorced. You know, obviously, when communication is poor, the relationship suffers, right? It remains superficial. It's strained. Uh, discord and conflict abound. Issues remain unresolved. And in the end, bitterness and resentment can set in. But more importantly than what communication can or will not accomplish if done poorly. Communication matters to God, 
right? Our communication reflects the image of our Creator, right? In the Godhead, right? between God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. But it also reflects the image of God in His relationship to us, right? Through His written word. So God cares about our communication. He gives specific commands and principles throughout Scripture. And today, we're going to be focusing on Ephesians chapter 4. But there are so many references to our communication given in Scripture. And what does that mean? It means that He cares about this particular topic, and He's expressed and revealed His will for us in His Word. And especially if you look at the book of Proverbs, which is a book of wisdom, Right? He gives us many biblical principles as far as how to live a life of wisdom according to His Word. Also, our communication brings glory or dishonor to Christ. And at the end of the day, His reputation is at stake with our communication. And that's where we need to begin this discussion. Right? What is the ultimate goal and purpose of our communication? And if I were to ask that question, what is the purpose or goal of our communication? Some answers I'd expect to get would be, first, to have peace or harmony in our relationship. Right? How many of us like to be in conflict? Right? Especially if you're married or you're dating. Right? I'm sure no husband sitting in this room right now enjoys being in the doghouse, right? But keeping the peace is not the biblical purpose of our communication. Peace can be the fruit of good communication, but should never be the ultimate goal, right? And especially if we're just sweeping things under the rug just to maintain the peace in a relationship. What's another reason that people would give as far as our purpose in our communication? Well, it's to be more effective or to be more productive in our relationship. And if we're honest with ourselves, we value this more than we care to admit, right? At home, say, between a husband and a wife, right, they're trying to parent or disciple their children, and so they'll see communication as a means just to be effective in their parenting. Well, what about at church, right? We serve together in ministry, you know, whether it's on the AV team or when we go on a short-term missions trip, and communication is important, Right? Uh, to be able to serve together in ministry. At our job or at school, you know, we've all probably had some experience working together on a team project or a group project where we need to communicate with one another. And as, as part of our, the medical group that I'm, uh, where I work, we're required every year to take this course on what they call the art of effective communication. Right? And it covers a wide range of topics, whether it's sharing bad news with our patients or dealing with difficult patients, which might be some of you. But the aim of the class is to improve our communication skills in our patient care. And the goal and the focus is on effective communication, you know, where at the end of the day, patient satisfaction scores serve as the standard for what is effective or not. But as citizens of His kingdom, the purpose of biblical communication is not ultimately about being effective or keeping the peace, but about bringing glory 
to God. 1 Corinthians 10, 31, if I can get my next slide, says this. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, except for when your roommate forgets to do his dishes for the third time this week, right, do all to the glory of God. Is that what it says? Or so whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, except for when you really had a long day at work and your kids are not listening to you, do all to the glory of God. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, except for when you're offended by something a brother or sister at church said to you, do all to the glory of God. That's not what it says. It says, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, no exceptions, no conditions, do all to the glory of God. There are no ifs, ands, or buts about it. 2 Corinthians 5, 9, so whether you are at home or whether you are away, we make it our aim to be pleasing to Him. And that includes our communication. It seems so obvious, doesn't it? Yet how often do we think about God's glory where we're in a disagreement with a roommate or with a spouse? Do we ever pray, Lord, help me to glorify you in the way I respond and not react in the heat of the moment? In our communication, our desire to glorify and please God must be greater than our desire to be right, our desire to be understood, our desire to be respected, our desire to be vindicated, and our desire to have our own way. So is it your ambition and goal in life to bring honor and glory to our King, to devote and and order our entire lives around our relationship with Him? If so, then our communication must reflect the words of our King. As disciples of Christ and as citizens of His kingdom, we are to imitate the communication of the living word, who we learned about this past Wednesday, and not the standards of this world. And in order to appreciate this, turn with me, if you would, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn with me to the book of Ephesians. And when we talk about biblical communication, we must start with God's purpose for our communication. Can I get my next slide? The theme of the book of Ephesians is God's great purpose for us in Christ Jesus. God's great purpose for us in Christ Jesus. And in chapter 1, the Apostle Paul introduces what this great eternal purpose of God is. Right? We read in verses 9b to 10. It says, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. We see that this divine plan to unite all things in Christ is not based on any human work, but on his sovereign work of salvation. He's the one that elected us, predestined us, redeemed us, and sealed us with the promised Holy Spirit to attain a glorious inheritance to the praise of His glorious grace. The Apostle Paul carries this theme into chapter 2 and tells us what God had to do in order to bring about our unity in Christ. First, because we were spiritually dead in the trespasses and sin in which we once walked, 
God had to make us alive together with Christ. Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. Second, because we Gentiles in the flesh were separated from Christ and strangers to the covenants of promise, which had been given to the Jews, God had to bring us near through the blood of Christ so that we might be made fellow citizens and members of God's household, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Ephesians 2, 11 through 22. And the Apostle Paul goes on to explain that the whole structure being joined and built together grows into a holy temple and a dwelling place for God. Once again, right, this theme and idea of unifying all things in Christ. Can I get my next slide? As we come to chapter 3 of Ephesians, the Apostle Paul makes explicit how this divine purpose of unity in Christ is to be realized. Verse 6, this mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. A couple of verses later, he explains that the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God, who created all things, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. And when we come to the doxology in verse 20, he writes, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the lives of individual believers. Is that what it says? No, it says, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. And back then, the church in Ephesus would have been made up of both Jews and Gentiles. And what God was doing is bringing them together, right? Uniting them in Christ. Right? So the mystery revealed in Ephesians chapters 1 through 3 is that the church is the realization and is the manifestation of God's eternal purpose and plan to unite all things in Christ. But what does this have to do with biblical communication? What does it have to do with the way I speak with my spouse, my roommate, my children, my coworkers, members of my discipleship group? Well, it has everything to do with our communication. Because while we tend to divide Ephesians 1 through 3, which is the doctrinal portion of the letter, from Ephesians 4 through 6, which is the practical application, they are inseparable and directly connected. Right? Ephesians 4 flows out of Ephesians 1 through 3 and is the outworking and outliving of the doctrine we have come to believe. And it is to the extent that we grasp the truth of this doctrine that we are compelled to live according to it. On the flip side, the problem with our communication goes much deeper than our words and our methodologies. The problem with our communication is rooted in and can be traced back to a wrong belief about God's eternal purpose and plan for us in Christ. 
So having said all that, how is this doctrine to be lived out? Look with me at Ephesians 4, 1 through 6. He writes, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Right, here's the general description of the life to which we are called. As citizens of his kingdom, we are to live out our gospel calling with humility, gentleness, patience, and love for the sake of our unity in Christ. Now, how are we to do that in particular? Skip down to verse 11 of Ephesians chapter 4, and we read, He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity, there's that word again, of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head into Christ. It's a verse that's familiar to many of us. We often use it as a proof text for when we're trying to give counsel especially when we're confronting someone in their sin. But as we saw, the immediate context is much broader. It's how we as believers are to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel for the sake of the unity we have in Christ. And speaking the truth in love is one particular way in which we are to live out our gospel calling in light of what God has done to make us alive in Christ and draw us near to Him through the cross. It is how believers are to communicate at all times, not just when we're giving counsel, and in all our relationships, in our marriages, in our parenting, with believers and unbelievers, but especially in our relationships with one another in the church. And we're going to use Ephesians 4, 15 through 16 as an outline for our discussion on biblical communication. Biblical communication involves delivering the right message through the right method with the right motivation for the right goal. Biblical communication involves delivering the right message, the truth, through the right method, speaking with the right motivation in love for the right goal, for the glory of God and the edification of others. 
Let me give a couple definitions up front of biblical communication by some well-known biblical counselors. Stuart Scott, who did our retreat, I believe last year, says this, biblical communication is sending a message that is holy, purposeful, clear, and timely. Holy, purposeful, clear, and timely. David Pallison says, Biblical communication is speaking words that are true, loving, personal, and appropriate. Notice that the focus is on the Christ-like characteristic of our communication, right? Holy, purposeful, true, and loving, right? It's not about what we can accomplish or produce through our words, And we see that Christ is our example and that His Word is to be our standard for biblical communication. For what what we have in His Word is God speaking the truth in love to us who are His children for our salvation and spiritual edification. That is what we have when we open up the Bible is His loving communication of the truth to us for the purpose of our salvation and spiritual edification. And so from Ephesians 4, 15 through 16, we will see four principles of biblical communication. So if I can have my next slide. Great. First, biblical communication involves delivering the right message. Speaking the truth in love. That means our words are to be truthful. It's it's to be holy, and it's to be righteous. When you think about Christ and His communication in the Gospels, were His words mostly righteous? No, they were perfectly righteous, right? When you think about the Word of God, are they mostly true? They're absolutely true without error, right? This is what we say is the doctrine of the inerrancy of Scripture, right? And if Christ is to be our example and His Word is to be our standard, then we must guard against any form of deceit, falsehood, and unrighteousness in our communication. Ephesians 4.25 says, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Again, we see this idea of unity, that we are members of one another. According to Proverbs chapter 6, verses 16 through 17, God hates any form of lying. It says it is an abomination to him whether it's an outright lie or exaggeration, like Esau in Genesis 25, whether it's a half or partial truth, like Abraham in Genesis 12, or an evasion of the truth, Cain in Genesis 4. We must hate what he hates and love what he loves, which is the truth. And oftentimes when you or I fail to speak the truth, Our intent is not to be malicious, right? We think of Peter, the disciple, 
denying Christ three times out of a fear of man. But we must fear the Lord above all and make sure that our communication is always righteous and true. For Matthew 12, 36 to 37 says, I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words, you will be justified, and by your words, you will be condemned. So statements such as, you always do this, or you never do that, right? Have any of you said that before? Right? are untruthful exaggerations that must be avoided. And no matter the situation or how we are spoken to, even if your spouse is in sin, by God's grace, we can always respond righteously and speak the truth in love. Again, Christ is our example in this. For when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly, 1 Peter chapter 2. And because he spoke the truth against those who hated the truth, he was persecuted and eventually crucified for it. Jesus was always righteous. Jesus was always truthful in his communication and we must strive to be like him in our communication with one another. If I can get my next slide. Second point, biblical, principle of biblical communication. Right, biblical communication involves delivering the right message through the right method. Right? It's speaking the truth in love. Now, we all should recognize, as Kevin mentioned earlier, that communication is more than just words. There's nonverbal communication, right? facial expressions, body language, eye contact. But the primary way by which God has created us in His image to communicate truth is through words. And we have some speech therapists and pathologists at our church, but it doesn't take being one to know that simply blowing air from your lungs against your vocal cords, causing them to vibrate and moving your tongue and lips such that words come out of your mouth does not fulfill our gospel calling to speak the truth in love. And when we consider the whole counsel of God, He has a lot to say about our speech. Right? I mentioned the book of Proverbs earlier, where the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And in the book of Proverbs, we see a repeated theme and contrast between the words, the mouth, the lips, and tongue of the foolish and wicked and that of the wise and righteous. What we say and how we speak matter to God, and it reveals whether we are foolish or wise, whether we are wicked or righteous. Proverbs 15, verse 1 says, A soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Proverbs 15, 4, a couple of verses later, A gentle tongue is a tree of life, but perverseness in it breaks the spirit. James 3 talks about the power of the tongue, right? how it can be destructive and set a great forest on fire. 
right? speaking figuratively. In Ephesians 4, 29 through 32, it says, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only such as is good for building up. Later on, it says, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Now, when you and I think of corrupting talk, as it says in verse 29, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, we tend to think of swearing or curse words or using the Lord's name in vain. But God's definition is actually much broader. According to verse 29, we are to put off any talk that does not build up or give grace to those who hear. Right? And the word corrupting there, in the Greek original language, actually just means rotten, right? Let no rotten talk come out of your mouth. And that's God's view of anything that does not build up or give grace to those who hear. It includes, but is not limited to bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander, or malice. Words that tear down or condemn the other person are not to be on the lips of those who belong to his kingdom. Instead, as we will see when we come to our third point, we are to put on edifying and gracious words. But before we move on, there's something else that Scripture calls us to to do even before we speak the truth, and that is to listen. That is to listen. Can I get my next slide? Good. We tend to focus on giving communication, right, especially at a church like ours where we might pride ourselves in knowing the truth. Not as much emphasis or effort is placed on listening. The communication is always a two-way street. James 1.19 says, Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. Especially in the midst of disagreement, we often are slow to hear, quick to speak, and quick to anger. We want to be heard rather than to hear. We want to be understood rather than to understand. We want the first word and the last word and every word in between, right? And in case anyone was wondering, being quick to hear does not mean formulating your next argument or rebuttal while your spouse or roommate is talking. For it says in Proverbs 18.2, a fool takes no pleasure in understanding but only in expressing his opinion. Instead, in order to be pleasing to the Lord, we must carefully consider what the other person is saying, even if we might disagree. At other times, to our folly and shame, we may have jumped to conclusions because we have not listened well. We're quick to offer a solution to a perceived problem without first listening to our spouse, right? Has anyone ever done that before, right? It's, the lo- it's like the doctor that prescribes a medication without first listening to his patient's symptoms. That would be a terrible doctor, right? 
You should fire him. The Proverbs 18.13 says, If one gives an answer before he hears, it is his folly and shame. So we are to be quick to hear and slow to speak. And when we do speak, we are always to speak the truth. Can I get my next slide? So we talked about the first two principles. So here's our third principle. Biblical communication involves delivering the right message through the right method with the right motivation. It says speaking the truth in love, right? Biblical communication is not about being brutally honest with the truth. It's not about giving them a piece of your mind. Again, when we look to the example of Christ, we see that he was always full of grace and truth. John 1.14. And going back to the verses we looked at earlier in Ephesians chapter 4, it says, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give what? May give grace to those who hear. Later on, it says, instead of bitterness and wrath and anger, we are to be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as Christ, sorry, as God in Christ forgave you. Instead of corrupting talk, unedifying speech, bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander, and malice, there is to be kindness tender-heartedness and forgiveness, which are all expressions of biblical love. Proverbs 15, 26 says, The thoughts of the wicked are an abomination to the Lord, but gracious words are pure. Colossians 4, verse 6, Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. In the previous chapter, in Colossians chapter 3, the Apostle Paul writes, put on then as God's chosen one, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these things, put on love which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Right? This should hopefully remind us of 1 Corinthians 13, which is arguably the most quoted but least practiced chapter in all of Scripture. Right? Love is what? Patient and kind. It does not envy, does not boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. The question is, how much of our daily conversation and communication actually reflects this kind of of biblical love, which, by the way, is not merely a feeling that comes and goes as one might fall in and out of love in a relationship, right? Love is a commitment, 
that's derived from the character of God, to patiently, humbly bear, believe, hope, and endure all things for the sake of the other. Hopefully some of you witnessed that yesterday at David and Bonnie's wedding. Many of us here are good at speaking the truth, but where we need to grow is in loving one another with the truth, in speaking the truth with our spouse, our children, our parents, or our roommates. We must not be arrogant or rude, irritable or resentful. We must not boast, envy, or insist on our own way in our communication. Instead, we are to be patient and kind when speaking the truth, always rejoicing in it for the sake of our unity in Christ. It's not just about the message or the method. God cares about the heart, the motivation, and the manner in which we communicate For it is out of the overflow of the heart that the mouth speaks. And to be Christ-like in our communication means we must always be speaking the truth out of love for God and love for our neighbor, the greatest commandments according to Jesus. Last but not least, if I can get my next slide, biblical communication involves delivering the right message through the right method with the right motivation for the right goal. It says, speaking the truth in love so that we might grow up in every way into Him who is the head into Christ so that the body grows and builds itself up in love. Biblical communication always has as its goal the spiritual growth and edification of others, that they might mature and grow up in Christ. 1 Thessalonians 5, 14 through 15 says, And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all, See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. As we see in this command and in the example of Christ, biblical communication sometimes involves encouragement, other times admonishment or warning, and other times help or correction. But it is always to be done with patience and love, and always for the spiritual good of others. Ephesians 4.29, going back to that same verse, says, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. If our goal is to build others up through our communication for the sake of of our unity in Christ. It requires wisdom to know what fits the occasion. And this goes to the issue of timing. According to God's Word, not only what you say or how you say it, but when you say it needs to be right. So that in the end, it would serve to edify others. Proverbs 25.11 says, a word Fitly spoken is like apples of gold in a setting 
of silver. Proverbs 15.23 says, To make an apt answer is a joy to a man in a word in season how good it is. We need to avoid the extremes of delaying dealing with conflict. And the other extreme of hammering it out while the kids are crying or need to be fed. Both are unselfish, unloving, and unwise. Right? It's also probably not the best time to hash things out when the other person is extremely tired or not in a good frame of mind. Ephesians 4.27 says that we are not to give the devil an opportunity to use the situation for evil. Stuart Scott, whom I quoted earlier, offers this wise counsel regarding this. Our aim should be to resolve conflicts at a good time and as soon as the time or situation will allow. Our aim should be to resolve conflicts at a good time and as soon as the time and situation will allow. So we can say something like this, can we talk about this after the kids are down? Or can we come back together after we've had some time to pray and be in His Word? Right? And we want to be communicating our intention versus simply ignoring or crawling into a corner. And by the way, when it says in Ephesians 4.26, be angry and do not sin, do not let the sun go down on your anger, It doesn't mean that your conflict must be fully resolved before the end of the day. Though it is ideal to resolve things quickly, we must not insist upon it. Like at 3 a.m., saying something like, we're not going to bed until we settle things right here, right now. You've already, the sun has already gone down anyway, right? And so you've already misapplied that, right? But it also does not mean that you can sinfully delay repenting of your anger until right before sunset, right? Well, the sun is still out, so I can hold on to my anger for a couple more hours. What it does mean is that you yourself must repent of your anger as quickly as possible. That is what God ultimately holds us accountable for. Again, the goal of biblical communication is to speak the truth in love so that others might be built up and edified for the sake of our growth and unity in Christ. But Ted, I thought you said at the very beginning that the glory of God is the ultimate purpose of our communication. Didn't I say that? Well, it is. The two are inseparable. God is glorified through our communication when the whole body and its individual members are edified, built up, and mature into Christ. The goal is not mutually exclusive, but one and the same. So then, it says in Ephesians 4, 15 through 16, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. 
Well, in closing, if I can have my final slide. If you're like me, you're probably thinking, well, this is impossible. To speak the truth in love always, in every relationship, for the benefit of others, for the glory of Christ, and for the sake of our unity in Him. And you would be absolutely right to feel this way if it were left up to us. But this is why the Apostle prays specifically for the Ephesians in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 19, and why we ought to pray for ourselves and for one another. It says there that we might know without any shadow of a doubt the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe. According to the working of His great might that He worked in Christ, when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. We don't need another book on communication. We don't need to take another course on the art of effective communication. As citizens of His kingdom, we have been given the very power that raised Christ from the dead and seated Him at the right hand of the Father. What a great power that is. Do we realize that? Do we apply that in our lives? Brothers and sisters, may we never forget that the motivation and power for Christ-like communication comes not from within ourselves, but from the cross. The gospel not only saves us from our sins, but it empowers us, as we heard this morning, to walk in a manner worthy of our calling by speaking the truth in love, so that the church might be edified and Christ might be magnified to the praise of His glorious grace. In this, we find great hope for our marriages and in all our relationships, as as hard as they can be at times that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And of this, we can be absolutely sure. So then, let us pray to be strengthened in his grace and to work out by faith our salvation through biblical communication. All right, let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word just the clarity, the sufficiency, the perfection, the authority of your word. Oh, how we need it and how you have graciously provided it for us so that we can not only know Christ, we can know you through Christ and we can know that the power that raised him from the dead and seated him at your right hand is at work in us. Help us to avail every means of grace to live out this gospel calling that you have given to us, what you have done to save us from our sins and set us apart to be part of your church, your household, citizens of your kingdom, so that we can live out this unity, this divine eternal purpose of unity in our relationships with one another here in this church, but also through our 
biblical communication, point others not to our own greatness, but the greatness of the one in whom we place our faith. May others see the beauty of Christ, the glory of Christ, through our communication. So we pray all these things for your glory. In his name we pray. Amen.